Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This is Carrie Antholis, your host of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. Before we begin today's episode, I want to let you know that we're going to be renaming Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst into simply Jury Duty. And that's because in the coming weeks, we will announce that the third season of our series will cover an entirely new trial as it happens. For more information on that, make sure that you're subscribed to this feed so you get the up-to-date information. And you can also check us out at crimestory.com. Welcome to Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. On today's episode, reporter Charles Bagley will present his profile on the man who became his trusted source on the Durst story, and then ultimately, the Los Angeles prosecutor's star witness, Nick Chabin. A close friend of both Susan Berman and Robert Durst, Chabin told Bagley two critical things. First, Chabin said that in 2014, Durst confessed to him that he killed Susan Berman. Second, Chabin told Bagley that years earlier, Susan had said that Durst confessed to her that he killed his wife, Kathy. Throughout this reading, you'll hear clips of Nick Chavin's courtroom testimony, phone interviews with prosecutors in the years leading up to the trial, and a recent interview conducted by Bagley. Later in the episode, we'll discuss this story with Charlie himself. That's coming up after the break. I first met Nick Chavin 21 years ago when I started chasing Robert Durst, the heir apparent to a vast real estate empire, who would ultimately become the subject of criminal investigations in three states over a span of 40 years. Chavin was a veteran of the New York real estate scene with a dry sense of humor and a keen sense of the absurd. His ribald stories were hilarious He never seemed to dodge my questions. Rather, he would puzzle out his answer as we spoke. He had no head for dates and an occasional tendency to undermine his own credibility, as he did when he later testified, jokingly, that he lied at times. After all, he was in the real estate advertising business. I was a reporter for the New York Times in the fall of 2000 when the paper got a tip that the New York State Police had opened the long dormant investigation into the disappearance of Durst's beautiful wife, Kathy McCormick Durst. I had covered the intersection of politics and real estate for years, and Chavin had worked with many of the city's most prominent developers. Over the years, we got to know one another. I talked many a time to his wife, Terry, and saw him play guitar and sing at B.B. King's Blues Club on the Deuce. That's 42nd Street. I valued his insights because he knew Durst's father, Seymour. He saw their father-son interactions. So many false or half-baked stories swirled around Durst that I often used him as a sounding board when I learned a new piece of information. Even when we disagreed, 
I never thought he was being deceptive. Chavin was close to Durst and to their mutual friend, Susan Berman. He was adamant. Bobby did not kill Kathy. I watched Bobby berserk with anxiety about not knowing what happened. Chavin told me at the time, he loved Kathy in a way that was so pure. Still, Chavin urged me to talk to Berman, who had introduced the two men to one another. Susan was the one person he confided in the most, he told me. But then he said something that floored me. Susan's convinced Bobby killed Kathy, Chavin said. Susan said to me specifically that Bob killed Kathy. And I said, no, he didn't. And she said, yes, he did. And we argued about that. And she said, we love both of them. Kathy's gone. We love Bob. We need to protect him. Bob killed Kathy. I said, how do you know? She said, he told me. What? In the next breath, he added, but I didn't believe her. Susan Berman will be sensational, but what you want are the facts. My relationship with Bob was very close, and I, I couldn't believe that he would have committed a crime like that. I just couldn't believe it. I did not know what to make of those conflicting statements, but I knew I had to speak to the keeper of Durst's most precious secrets, Susan Berman. My calls to her house on Benedict Canyon Drive had gone unanswered. I asked Chavin to persuade her to talk to me. Neither Chavin nor I knew at the time that our conversation would be the beginning of a long odyssey that would take us from New York to Los Angeles and back again, during which time Durst would become a suspect in not one but three deaths in three different states. I can't tell you how many times I packed my files away in the attic, thinking that the Durst case, with so many unanswered questions, would never be resolved. Nick and I spoke dozens and dozens of times, as the case would fall from the headlines, only to resurface again years later. Chavin had attended the University of Texas in Austin in the 1960s. Coincidentally, at the same time, Durst's main criminal lawyer, Dick DeGuerin, was in law school at the same university. Chavin was living in San Francisco and fronting a band called Country Porn when he met Berman. She was a journalist who wrote a couple of articles about Chavin, who was known on stage as Chinga Chavin. They hit it off. And shortly after Berman moved to New York to work for New York Magazine and other publications, Chavin also relocated to New York, hoping to burnish his music career. When I came to New York, my wife and I decided that I would raise, for, for at least a few years, my daughter by myself. And we, we needed to have her brought to New York. And we asked Susan Berman if she would accompany our, our, our five-year-old daughter to New York. And I knew Susan well, but you know, it's a pretty serious thing to have someone bring your five-year-old daughter. So, did Susan bring your daughter back to New York? Yes, she did. Yes, she did. Can you explain why it was that this trip Susan took to New York with your daughter, why that deepened your friendship with Susan? Because 
she lived up to the trust we had put into her, and she made Brandy happy and secure, and I, I, I would love her forever for that. <clears throat> when you said Susan took your daughter, was that because Susan knew your daughter about himself? Yes. How well did Susan know your daughter at that moment? That was the first time she ever met her. <clears throat> and so Susan was the kind of friend that offered to take your daughter on a company on that trip? Yes. His band never got traction. So to make ends meet, Chavin took a job as a copywriter for an advertising company. Berman introduced him to her close friend, Bob Durst, in 1980 over lunch at the famed Four Seasons restaurant on Park Avenue. The two men hit it off. Durst sent Chavin's career into the stratosphere a short time later when he called Chavin asking if he was interested in handling the advertising for the Durst's latest office project the 44-story tower at 1155 Avenue of the Americas. It wasn't long before Chavin handled the accounts for other developers, including Donald J. Trump's Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue. I, I was doing advertising at an agency, I was a copywriter, and Bob called me one day and said, we have this new building we're building, 1155 Avenue of the Americas. You want to do the advertising for it? Now, this is an utterly strange question to ask a newbie in advertising if he would want to take control of a big account coming into an agency, the largest one at the agency. So, Mr. Chairman, you get the, get the uh, opportunity account? The Durst account, yes. And, and by the way, how big of an account, if you can recall at that point, was this? It probably would build three or four hundred thousand dollars during the development of the uh, of the building but that was a lot more money then than it is now is it at least three or four hundred thousand dollars is that per year yeah and until the building was leased up and in getting this account um if i were to ask you how instrumental was that in accelerating your career what would be your response it was 100% responsible until I began to get other accounts because I had the Durst account. All I had to do was walk in somewhere and say, yes, I have the Durst organization account, and I would get other accounts, which I wouldn't have gotten if I didn't have the Durst account. Does that make sense? Sure. What did you end up, so you, you're at this advertising firm, you get this, the Durst account. In the end, what does that end up becoming in terms of your professional career? After a few more accounts, my uh, partner, Lanny Lambert, and I broke off from the agency and formed our own agency specializing in real estate advertising called Shaven Lambert. And who was your biggest client? Well, Durst was one, but uh, Rock Rose Development was another one, and Brodsky was another one. And the other two accounts that you mentioned, other than the Durst organization account, are those accounts that you believe that you and your agency were able to bring in because of your association with the Durst organization? Yes, it became like a snowball where you're rolling downhill. It, it, it's self-accruing, and it, with each new account, it became a longer client list. Durst and Chavin were running buddies throughout the 1980s. He knew Kathy, and he had double-dated with Durst and Prudence Farrow, the woman who inspired the Beatles song, Dear Prudence with whom Durst was having an affair at the time of Kathy's disappearance in 1982. 
Chavin figured, he said, that they had an open marriage, like many people he knew in the Anything Goes days of the early 1980s. What kind of stuff would you and, and Mr. Durst do together? We went out socially. We, we had what we called boys' night out. And we'd, uh, we'd go out and go to nightclubs and, and bars. And was the pursuit of female companionship part of what you and Mr. Durst would do? Yes, to an extent, yes. And by this point, are you separated, divorced? What's your status? We didn't get, uh, my status was married but separated. And what was Mr. Durst's status? Married, I believe, yeah. Did Mr. Durst ever explain to you, or did you ever ask, anything about how his marriage to Kathy affected his pursuit of women at bars. There were times when we would double date where Bob would go out with Kathy and I'd go out with a female friend of mine, just there were several. And there were times when we would each go out with different women and he wasn't with Kathy. So we double dated sometimes with two women that were new to us and so, or relatively new and sometimes where I had a girlfriend, sort of temporary girlfriend, and Bob went out with his wife. Did you ever discussion with him about why he was out dating other women when he was married? Yes, but not that directly. Bob described his marriage as open, open meaning dating other women. Durst was the co-best man at Chavin's wedding to Terry in Las Vegas in 1988. The same year, Chavin introduced Durst to his second wife, Deborah Charon. So my first question is about Prudence Sparrow. You had mentioned that, that Bob was dating her while he was married to Kathy. Tell us about her. And, you know, this was a woman that inspired uh, the Beatles song, Dear Prudence. Prudence Farrow was a, I mean, I knew her first before I knew her through Bob. I knew, I knew of her. And she was like your typical kind of bohemian wearing Levi's with those kind of straps going over your shoulders and rainbow uh, embroidery macrame on both sides. She looked like a completely uninteresting hippie. And what was interesting was that she was a completely uninteresting hippie. And I found her that way when we double dated. She said hardly anything. I mean, Dear Prudence, that song wouldn't have been written if it weren't for her sister, since it was really Dear Prudence, comma, sister of Mia Farrow. Was Mia Farrow with the Maharishi at the same time? Yeah, and the Beatles were there, and Mia Farrow was there, and no one asked who that other person was. And, and interestingly enough, she coattailed in on the fame of the Beatles, and her sister really didn't want to. Tell me about how she and Bob interacted, because Bob has said that he was really taken with her. I'm going to sound real cynical with this, but I just never saw that. I saw him much more taken with other people that he went out with. He would never have said that before the jinx. He was taken with the Beatles having written the song, and he was taken with Beatles thing. I mean, she really didn't say, I don't think she said 10 words when we went out on a date. I had frequently interviewed both Durst's father, Seymour, and his younger brother, Douglas, who had been anointed to take over the family business instead of Bob. The first story I wrote about Bob Durst with my colleague, Kevin Flynn, 
was published November 11, 2000. Until then, I didn't know anything about Robert or his wife. As the oldest son of Seymour, Durst was initially considered to be the heir apparent of the family's real estate empire. But by the late 1980s, his erratic behavior prompted his father and uncle to reconsider. In the early 1990s, Seymour decided that Bob's younger brother, Douglas, would take over. Bob has been estranged from his family ever since. Flynn and I were fascinated by the circumstances surrounding the disappearance of his wife, Kathy, four months before she would have graduated medical school. The lies Durst told as to his whereabouts when his wife vanished, and the powerful Durst family, which owned a dozen skyscrapers in Manhattan. At Chavin's urging, I was eager to speak to Berman, but Flynn and I thought the story would probably die once again because the authorities did not have any more evidence in 2000 than they did in 1982. There was no body. There was not even an official crime scene. Less than two months later, on January 5th, 2001, I was thumbing through the New York Daily News when I found a story at the bottom of page eight that made my head spin. Mobster's kin killed. Ryder was daughter of Bugsy's partner. Berman, whose father, Davy the Jew Berman, had been a gangster and a partner of Bugsy Siegel's in the mob-financed Flamingo Hotel, Las Vegas, had been found by police dead of a gunshot wound on December 23rd. Her death had gotten lost in the tumult of the holidays. I shot up out of my chair and called Chavin. Nick, I shouted, Susan's dead. Did you talk to her, he asked. At the same time, I demanded, had he asked her to call me? The answer was no on both counts. All right, I want to now go back to um, Susan Berman's death. Do you remember how it was that you heard about it? Oh, yes, I do. There was a time when a reporter from the New York Times, uh, when, just as the case, I believe, uh, about uh, Kathy's disappearance was being reopened, this reporter uh, was asking me questions about uh, Susan Berman, and I said, uh, I think there's someone more knowledgeable you could talk to than, than me. You should talk to Susan Berman in California. I said, okay. Then a few days later, I got a phone call in the morning getting out of the cab at work, and it was the reporter. Am I supposed to mention his name? Yes. Charles Bagley. He, he said, did you see the paper this morning? I said, no. And he said, Susan Berman has been murdered. And then he proceeded to say if this was a television show, it would seem too predictable and ridiculous. Mr. Bagley, I believe, is present again today, reporting. Yes. All right. Record shall so reflect. I believe the conversation was something like in a poorly written TV show, the reporter would ask about someone, he'd be given a number and a name, and then the next day they're murdered. Days later, Nick and I made plans to attend Berman's February 1 memorial service at the Writers Guild Auditorium in Beverly Hills. The organizers of the memorial were hoping that Durst, who was staying at a nearby hotel in Santa Monica, would attend if reporters were kept out of the service. My plan was to walk in with Chavin like I belonged there. But in the lobby, we ran into Sarah Kaufman, who was like a son to Berman. 
He embraced Chavin and then turned to me. After I told him I was a reporter, he asked me politely to wait outside. Did you go to Susan's uh, memorial? Yes. And did that take place uh, approximately February 1st, 2001? I believe so, yes. And do you recall having a conversation with Julie Smith at that time? Yes, I do. And do you recall the nature of that conversation with Julie Smith? It was approximately the same. Well, I related to her the conversations, the plural, that I had with Susan. With, with uh, uh, Susan. Does that mean you told Julie Smith what Susan Bergman had told you about Kathy? Yes. Chavin, however, was by no means convinced that Durst was a killer. I flew back to New York without writing an article. I had interviewed Berman's friends and relatives and LAPD detectives who offered up several suspects, including the landlady who tried to evict Berman from her house, geriatric mob cronies of Berman's father, and briefly, Berman's manager, but not Bob Durst. Bobby loves Susie. Susie loved Bobby, they responded like a Greek chorus to my questions. What was there to write about? Back in New York, the new investigation into Kathy's disappearance by state police investigator Joe Becerra and the Westchester County District Attorney continued, turning up new suspicions about Durst, but little by way of evidence. Our heads nearly exploded nine months later when we heard that Bob Durst had been arrested in Galveston, Texas for the shooting and dismemberment of a neighbor, Morris Black. Durst had gone into hiding in Galveston, where he posed as a mute woman who escaped the investigation back home. Durst said he befriended Black, who lived across the hall from him in a rooming house. Durst claimed that the two men had wrestled over Durst's handgun. When they fell to the floor, the gun discharged, killing Black. Fearing that no one would believe him in light of the New York investigation, Durst cut up Black's body and threw the pieces in Galveston Bay, but not before he got a haircut and spent a night at the San Luis, the most luxurious hotel on the island. While in jail, awaiting trial in Galveston, Durst made call after call to his second wife, Deborah Cheriton, and friends, including Chavin. When is the next time, approximately, you can remember that you heard from Bob? Years went by. And then, oh, go ahead, and then the next time I heard from him was a phone call from Galveston, from Texas, where he was. Mr. Chavin, can you please describe your level of shock when you learned that Robert Durst had dismembered Morris Black's body with his hands and tools? Extreme shock. Disbelief. If someone were to have told you that that had happened without an admission by Mr. Durst that he had done it, would you ever have believed that the Robert Durst you knew could have done such a thing? Of course not. Bob Durst called you from the Galveston jail. Do you recall discussing that previously? That's the first time you indicated you had spoken to him by your memory in a number of years. Is that right? Correct. And what, if anything, when he called you, what did he say or ask you to do? 
He asked me to take the call from a psychiatrist that had been, I guess, I don't know what the word is, that he'd been examined by. And he was coaching me as to what he would like me to talk about and discuss. And what did he specifically say well, to you? He, he was, we were both aware of the fact that the call was being listened to by the authorities. So his language was, and it, because we knew each other well that he could do this, he said, you remember how I had that Asperger's difficulty when I was uh, younger? And uh, I said, yes, no, to the best of my knowledge, I knew, knew of no such thing, but I was saying yes, because we were being listened to. He then went through a series of psychological disorders uh, emphasizing that I already knew about these and would I explain them in more detail to the psychiatrist. Now, this was, all of these were news to me and I was more than willing to do that. Let me stop you. Had you ever known Mr. Durst previously to mention to you that he had Asperger's? No. Had you ever noticed any symptoms based on your experience that your friend Bob Durst had displayed in the years you've known him, consistent with Asperger's? No. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At the trial in Galveston, Durst said he did not murder Black. His death, Durst told the jury, was an accident that occurred while Durst defended himself. What happened afterward, grisly as it was, does not change how Black died, Durst's lawyers repeated again and again. A jury acquitted Durst on November 5, 2003, after deliberating for four days. On my way to the airport in Houston the next morning, talk radio callers were crazed about the jury's decision. The New York Post headline took a similar view. Run for your lives! Durst did have to spend some more time in jail. First, there were the related charges, bail jumping and tampering with evidence, i.e. Morris Black's corpse. When he was about to be released in April 2004, he was arrested again on federal weapons charges. Durst eventually pleaded guilty and served another six months in prison. He was later arrested for a parole violation when he showed up at the Galveston house where the shooting took place. While he finished off that sentence, Durst, in 2006, settled a lawsuit he had filed against his brother and the family trust for a $65 million payday. Durst was at the center of two other cold cases, the disappearance of his wife Kathy and the murder of Susan Berman, that were gathering dust in New York and Los Angeles. But for his decision to start talking to journalists, it's likely that Durst would have been a free man 
quietly flitting between homes in Texas, California, and New York. In November 2010, I took Chavin to the New York premiere of the movie All Good Things, starring Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst. It was a fictionalized version of Durst's life and nonetheless implicated him in the deaths of three people. Durst had reached out to me through friends to say that after 10 years of trying, he finally agreed to meet with me for an interview. A month earlier, Durst had contacted the filmmakers, who arranged for a private screening of All Good Things. He liked it so much that he agreed to a lengthy interview that, at least initially, was planned as an extra for the movie's DVD. I wrote about Durst's reaction to the film in a story for the Times entitled, That's Me on the Screen, but I still didn't do it. He said parts made me cry, although he did not appreciate that the film also suggested that he killed his beloved dog, Igor. All in all, Durst concluded it was as reasonably accurate as anything out there. Chavin, on the other hand, told me that the movie did not properly portray the sometimes warm relationship between Bob and his father Seymour, who was played by the actor Frank Langella. Seymour had no resemblance to the hulking Langella, Chavin told me. You're describing a guy who doesn't seem to resemble the Seymour Durst that we saw in the movie, All Good Things. It's an understatement. Frank Langella, he looked as much like Seymour Durst as the average linebacker on the Packers. Uh, Seymour is a small, diminutive guy, and the character that they cast for Seymour was just not, you know, this hoarding guy with suitcases full of money. I mean, that's a joke. I mean, Seymour was anything but greedy. He wasn't greedy, and he cared about things. And the, my best memory of him was there was a, a Boy Scout assembly, and they were honoring a few people in, in the business community, one of them was Seymour, and he was in uniform, Boy Scout uniform with shorts and one of the Smokey the Bear hats and a whistle. Oh, really? He looked terrific. He was very proud of being honored by the Boy Scouts, very proud. Hmm. He had a sense of community that you just don't see because it never gets gets publicity or notoriety. His sense of community was really awe-inspiring. This was important to Chavin because his life was so intertwined with the Durst, even after Bob stopped returning calls from him in the early 1990s. Chavin had worked on and off for Seymour and the Durst organization, while his wife Terry, a real estate agent, did two separate stints with a company owned by Bob's second wife, Deborah Cheriton. Seymour Durst, I know that when you met Bob, he sort of helped launch your career when he offered to uh, let you and your firm do the advertising for their new skyscraper. Yes, he, he did, and it was interesting, but he did it with a, sort of half of his mouth being disdainful of all advertising. <laughs> he, he described what I did to my face as, as bullshit stuff. I said, you're right, he said it to my face. And he meant, in terms of the real things being assemblage property, uh, architectural drawings, how much uh, the cost of stone was, how much each thing was. Certainly no one gave a flying fuck about advertising, least of all him. 
On November 5th, 2014, an excited Chavin called me to say that he had reunited with Bob. Although Chavin had been shocked by Durst's bloody dismemberment of Morris Black, he still harbored some affection for his old friend. Bob gave him a key to his five-story townhouse at 218 Lenox Avenue in the Morris Park section of Harlem. Terry Chavin had served as his broker when he bought the property in 2011. Bob also urged Chavin to sit down with Andrew Jarecki, whose interviews of Durst had morphed into the jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, a six-part HBO documentary that was scheduled to air in February 2015. But on December 1, Jarecki sent an email to both Chavin and Durst expressing his frustration that Chavin refused to cooperate. I have said ad nauseum that having Nick in the film is important, Jarecki wrote. We absolutely need people who love Bob and have known him for a long time. So this is a real issue for me in the film. In early December, Chavin called again to tell me that he was having dinner on December 10th with Durst at the Oyster Bar in Grand Central Terminal. Bob wants to talk about Susie and Kathy, he said. The dinner had another purpose, to celebrate what Bob anticipated would be his acquittal for trespassing at the home of his brother Douglas and other members of the Durst family. The dinner, however, was postponed because Bob's bench trial went into a second day, though it did end, as Durst predicted, with an acquittal. The dinner, to talk about Susie and Kathy, took place shortly after the bench trial at Barrowine a bistro at Lenox Avenue and 120th Street, a couple doors south of Durst's Harlem home. But it would be months before Chavin told me what happened. His silence convinced me that something momentous had occurred. In the meantime, on December 19th, Durst sent Chavin an angry email. I asked you to do one thing, meet with Jarecki. You asked me to do one thing, use my apartment. I thought you had done what I asked, and I did what you asked. Recently, I found out that you never met with Jarecki. As you know, I have put up with that kind of shit most of my life, but stopped after the murder trial. Durst ended the email with this. I just had the key to 218 Lennox changed. If you meet with Jarecki, I will send it to you. This is what I mucho prefer. Chavin did not do the interview, but months later, Durst became a national sensation with the broadcast of The Jinx. Durst had given the filmmakers over 20 hours of interviews and unfettered access to 60 cartons of family photos, legal papers, credit card statements, and phone records. Why do you think Bob was so keen on having you be interviewed by Jarecki? So I think Bob wanted me to talk to Jarecki because he wanted someone that saw his point of view and was a friend of his to give that information to Jarecki. And your motivation ultimately for dodging Jarecki was what? I knew that for me to be associated in any way, Bob was going to be the kiss of death now because he was poison. It was not very toward to be doing anything with Bob Durst at that point. He was a murderer and he was an embarrassment to the real estate community and no one who had any aspirations in the real estate community could have anything to do with Bob. 
So I, I had my whole career and reputation at stake by talking to him. So I just did the cowardly thing and didn't. Did Bob understand that, or did he never really understand what the problem was? I think he was too much, too much wrapped up in his own agenda to even think about it. Oh, no, he's smart enough to have known that it wasn't in my interest, and he's self-centered enough not to care. He acknowledged that he had lied to the police about his whereabouts at the time Kathy vanished, and that the final years of his marriage had been filled with escalating emotional and physical violence. He insisted at the time that he had not written the anonymous note alerting police to the presence of a cadaver at the home of Susan Berman in Los Angeles. Although, in 2019, he would finally concede that he was the author. Hours before the final episode of The Jinx aired, Durst was arrested in New Orleans on a murder warrant for shooting his confidant, Berman, in the back of the head. Ultimately, Chavin, Durst's longtime defender, who was torn between his loyalty to his two best friends, would become the single most important witness for the prosecution in the trial that unfolded in Los Angeles. Durst called Chavin from jail, quickly asking about the dinner the two men had at Barrowine and trying to get a feel for what Chavin would do with it. Chavin was non-committal, but he had already begun talking with Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney John Lewin. Still, it would take Lewin seven months to persuade Chavin to rip off the Band-Aid and reveal what Durst had told him. Okay, so tell me, so what is your memory about what Susan said about um, Bob having killed Kathy? Can I think about it if I want to talk about that? Hey, Nick, can, can you tell me, is it because of your loyalty to Bob? Uh, I mean, it's understandable. You can be honest about yeah. it. We're just trying to figure I, out what... I mean, it is... Is, yeah. it, is, it, is it because you guys are still friends, or...? I love Susan because she's a dear, dear friend. Yeah. And the same with Bob, so this is... Well, thing with your, your, your best friend killing your other best friend. The prosecution ultimately flew Chavin and his wife Terry to Los Angeles, where they were protected by a SWAT team. Before he took the stand, the defense asked Judge Mark Wyndham to exclude me from the courtroom, the idea being that they would call me as a witness to impeach Chavin's testimony. The judge quickly denied their request. But what the defense didn't know was that I had watched Chavin's thinking about his old friend Durst evolve since he first told me that Bob was incapable of violence. In his testimony, Chavin recalled the fateful dinner with Durst at Barrowine and the secret Durst had told him. The dinner concluded, and it was then that I... As we got up to leave, I realized that we hadn't discussed the two things that he had mentioned, Kathy and Susan. I felt kind of weird that I didn't bring it up. Uh, we walked out the door. This is hard. We walked out the door, and on the sidewalk, I said, you wanted to talk about Susan. And Bob said, I had to. It was her or me. I had no choice. And then he 
turned to walk away and I said, you wanted to talk about Kathy? And he just kept walking away. Nothing more was said. One of the primary foundations of my belief that Bob was not responsible for Kathy's disappearance or what happened to Susan was that I couldn't believe that he was capable of, of hands-on violence against someone at that extreme. But hereafter, admitting that he was, it's like taking the gloves off. All, all things are possible now. Mr. Chairman, can you describe in your own words how it makes you feel to be up there testifying against somebody that you consider to be your best friend? I can try. I feel, I feel like there's two scales. One is a betrayal of Bob Durst, and the other is a betrayal of Susan Berman. And they, I feel two senses. I feel, I feel that the betrayal I had felt of Susan Berman has lightened considerably, and I have the weight of, of feeling grief and sadness about Bob. Not betrayal, but grief and sadness. After a four-month-long trial and only seven and a half hours of deliberation, the jury in the murder trial of Robert Durst delivered its verdict on September 17th, guilty on all counts. Durst was guilty of stealthily going to the home of Susan Berman, and when she turned her back on her most trusted friend, Durst put a gun to the back of her head and pulled the trigger. The jury found Chavin, the man Durst described as one of his two best boyfriends, credible, despite or maybe because of Chavin's inner turmoil over his loyalty to Durst before reaching a decision to seek justice for Susan's murder. His decision, which he shared with me, deprived the defense of a potential character witness for their client, whose circle of friends was always very small. In contrast, Durst's other boyfriend, Doug Oliver, was so intent on protecting his friend that no one in the courtroom believed what he had to say. Even when Chavin was wrong, as he was when he told me that Bob didn't know which end of the gun the bullet came out of, he provided a glimpse into Durst's ability to compartmentalize his friends. We both came to understand that Bob was well acquainted with handguns, a fact that Durst kept well hidden. Ultimately, it was Chavin who recounted Bob's confession, a dramatic moment that his well-paid defense attorneys barely challenged. You can read Charlie's piece in full at crimestory.com. And joining us now, we welcome Charlie to answer some questions that Brittany and I have about the piece. Charlie, thanks for writing that piece and thanks for joining us. Thank you. One of the things I found when you put me on the phone with Nick and we were chatting was that Nick shares Bob's kind of sophomoric, adolescent sense of humor. He recounted a story of Bob rolling a boulder down the hill and almost hitting Nick and another companion that they had on a hike. And Bob thinking that was really, really funny. And then 
I recounted Thomas Durst's testimony about Bob trapping Thomas in a revolving door, and Nick found that to be very funny. Do you think that's reflective of the bond between Bob and Nick? I'm not so sure. I, I, I think that Nick sort of looked up to Bob and he was amused by him, but he never pressed him really hard on anything. I remember he once told me that when he was still thinking that Bob was incapable of violence, he said that Bob would never confront someone. What he would do is figure out a way to provide payback. I would have shared Tom's volcanic anger about that moment. As for Nick, Nick would never have done something like that. So Charlie, we've heard over the course of this trial from a few of Bob's close friends. And the thing that sets Nick Chavin apart is that he's the one who turned on him ultimately. Can you talk a little bit about how you think the jury perceived Nick in terms of credibility compared to, say, Doug Oliver or Susie Giordano? Sure. I I think that Nick took the stand and laid out the long evolution of his thinking about his old friend, I think it became that much more believable because Nick was frank about the turmoil in his own mind. In contrast, when Doug took the stand, now Doug did everything he could on the stand to provide nothing for the prosecution. He was, as he told me afterwards, a terrible witness. And there was no way that, in the end, the defense could bring him back as a character witness for Bob because everybody could see what he was trying to do, how he was trying to protect his friend. Susan Giordano, her relationship with Bob was all tied up in money. Her explanations appeared so far-fetched, and she just kept digging a deeper hole so that, again, I don't think that anyone believed her what she had to say, good or bad about Bob. Charlie, I sensed from our conversations about Nick and with Nick that your relationship with him has evolved over 20 years from that of a source to that of a friend, that you you have a real affection for him. What do you think is at the heart of why you like Nick Chavin? I guess there's a couple of things. One is that over time, I, I found Nick to be very credible. And and I also kind of liked the way he would speak out loud about what was going on in, in his head. But I also liked hearing about his exploits in the world of music. He told me because he was going to college in Austin, Texas, he was the one that drove Janis Joplin to the bus that took her to Los Angeles. Nick has no artifice. He is who he is. And he tells these stories and he has these observations on whether it's Durst or just anything in the world that are uh, very amusing. And he is who he is. Charlie, I think that's a good place for us to leave it today. On Thursday of this week, Robert Durst will return to the courtroom for his sentencing hearing. We'll cover that hearing in an episode next week. So we hope you'll join us then. And again, Thank you for listening to Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. 
Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was edited by yours truly, Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Alexis Notabartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.